Well, over the years, I have had many conversations with people about faith, and a lot of people have brought up to me the danger of religion. Many of them will profess to be atheists or agnostics. Some are, would say that they are spiritual but not religious. And when they talk about the danger of religion, I'll press it a little bit and I'll say, well, what, what exactly do you mean by that? Typically, they will talk about all the wars and atrocities uh, that have been done in the name of God. And when they're done, I will typically look at them and say, I agree. I agree. A lot of horrible, horrible things have been done throughout the centuries in the name of God. Then I try to steer the conversation a little bit different way, and I, and I ask them if they're aware of, uh, aware of something that might even be a much greater eternal danger. And that's the title of our message, and the title of our message is The Danger of Phony and Fruitless Religion. Some might call it a nominal religion. It's a religion or a belief that kind of exists in name only, and it, it's far below what it's supposed to be. You know, when something doesn't have a lot of value, we say it is of nominal value. And you may find this surprising, but this is much of the church. And, and as we will see, God will judge bad churches and bad leaders. Why? Well, I think a lot of it is tied to the fact that when Jesus Christ, God become a man, stepped onto the stage of human history, the first words out of his mouth in his public ministry were, were this, the kingdom of God has arrived, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing. It has arrived in the person of Jesus. The kingdom has arrived because the king has arrived. And we are to repent, we are to turn to God and believe the good news, believe that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life in our place, died a sinner's death in our place, that and anybody who would put their trust in him could have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But as you read the Bible, it's, ver it's plain to see that the leaders and the people didn't repent and believe. Now, as you can imagine, some of the religious leaders and religious people of Jesus' day, uh, those in charge of the temple and many in charge of the church today, are not too happy with the teaching of Jesus. That's still the case today. I mean, it's not uncommon to meet people. They'll say to you, I'm Christian, I just don't believe the Bible. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you, you say you're part of a religion where the founder became, claimed to be God, and, and you don't believe what he wrote and what his followers wrote, and I, it just doesn't really compute. I think there's a lot of reasons why people in church get very off on such things and, and their belief systems, and I think a lot of times too many people tie church with the building. You know, they're driving down the, down the street, and they go, oh, look at that church, and they just associate it with, with the building. A lot of people associate it with the clergy. They're like, it's all about the, the different clergy people. Uh, some people with the sacraments or some people with the rituals. And sadly, in a lot of places, and we have to be as careful about this as anybody else, true worship is often really missing, the true worship of God. So as we roll through what we just read, I want to divide it up into three sections. first section will probably be longer than the other two. And so that way some of you are like, my goodness, what, when's this guy going to stop talking? I'm giving you a measure of hope, some of you. And, and so if you're taking notes, number one, seeing phony religion, seeing phony religion. I want to read verse 12 twice because I want to really 
terribly interrupted the second time through. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. So remember last week was the triumphal entry. Jesus came into Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. He came into uh, the city on a, on a donkey. People were cheering. People were so excited, that hoping that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was going to be the one that was going to free them from Roman oppression. And they were arriving for the Passover where they would be going into the temple. They would be having their animals sacrifice. Again, we are in the last week of Jesus' life. The cross is coming down the road. Verse 12 tells us, then Jesus went into the temple of God. And so just imagine they're, they're in the city and the temple is absolutely huge. It is this magnificent structure and it was the center of Judaism. It was the center of Jewish life. It was the, really the, the, the center of everything that, that, Israel, that Israel was. And it, said, it says that Jesus drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. So if you were in there buying something, you had to go. Jesus tossed you out. If you were in there selling something, you had to go. Jesus tossed you out. I, I can't help but think about the constant appeal that some people are making for money over and over and over again, that it, that it is much of the same. And it says, and then and overturned. That's an important word because a lot of what we're going to talk about today is Jesus overturning what's going on at the temple overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And you're saying, what are they selling doves for? They had all different kinds of animals they would make for sacrifices for, and the dove was the poor man's offering. And so they, he, Jesus has a problem with the people that are, that are selling the doves there. So let's, again, try and picture the scene. Uh, Jesus enters the temple area, and and. Similar to going into many buildings, there is a, a sequence of areas or a sequence of events that you would go through, and we might call them checkpoints. Now, you came in here to the church today, there's a guy in the parking lot, and then you met people at the door, and then you, maybe you went in for the cafe, or you went to children's ministry or something like that, and then you came in, there was ushers. So those would be different points of contact, but did anybody ask you for any identification? Really, they're not doing their job. They should have asked you for identification. What was the cover charge to get in? Just curious. <laughs> no cover charge either, huh? How about that? So they're, they're, they're having various checkpoints that are going through there, and that is actually what happened when you would go into the temple. When you would first enter, you would get there. You would be in what was called the Court of the Gentiles. So you were welcome there. Anybody could go there. If you, they had to walk through it to get there. You were welcome there if you were a, a non-Jew, if you were a non-Jew, but you were a convert or you're looking to become a convert, wanted to know more about Judaism. You could go in there, but you could go no further. If you weren't a Jew, this was, you had to stop right there. That was as far as you could go. And that's where Jesus is come to right now. The next place was uh, the Court of Women. And that was a place for Jewish women. Let's see if you have a better reaction than the last service. Some of the women weren't too happy about that. And if you were a Jewish woman, you were allowed to go in there, but no further. You couldn't go. It's just saying, yeah, not so good. <laughs> you, could go, you could go no further than that. And, and then the next place was the court of Israel. And that was the place where Jewish men were allowed to go into. But you could go no further unless you were in the ministry. 
unless you had a clergy ID card, which, by the way, will save you $4 of parking at Marstown Hospital. No charge for that one, okay? And so you couldn't, you had to have your clergy ID there. You couldn't, you couldn't go in you, no further than that. The next was the sanctuary or the court of the priests, and only the priests could go in, and that was the place where there was the altar and the place where the sacrifices were made, and the final place was the Holy of Holies, the place where the high priest would go in once per year to make sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. So here, Jesus, the one who the Bible calls the great high priest, comes out into the court of the Gentiles and looks around, and it looks more like a marketplace to him than it does to the house of the Lord. Well, what's going on? Well, the people would bring animals to, for their own uh, sacrifices. In Deuteronomy, Moses told people to bring their own animals. But what had happened is people now were coming from so far all over the place. People had been dispersed all over. So a lot of times what people would do was they wouldn't bring their own animal. animal. They would just buy one when they got there. And so it made things a lot easier for travel. I'm not so sure. We'll talk about that in a second, that Jesus had any, had any huge problem with that. And so what could happen is you would go to the temple and you could buy animals. Well, as you can guess, there was people that were price gouging on the animals. They were way overcharging. And, you know, uh, they, imagine you're walking into this kind of marketplace and going, oh, buy mine, buy mine, buy mine. And, and so then also what could happen is your animal, when it could be examined by the priest, they could disqualify your animal. And they would be like, no, yours is no good. It's not perfect. Come on, you got to buy one of ours. And then they'd throw it in the back room, and once they knew you were gone, they'd take it out and they'd sell it to somebody else. And, and so they had this whole money thing going on, and you know you could bet the, the high priests and the people there, they were getting a cut of it. They were very, very, very wealthy, wealthy people. We're also told that the, um, the, the, the money changers uh, were there, and what were these guys doing? You had, they were exchanging the currency because you had to have it in temple money. Most scholars think it was in uh, Tyrian shekels that you had to buy it, which was shekels from Tyre known for their exact weight. And so there was, there was crookedness in the currency exchange. They were, they, were, they were jockeying that, and they would make money off of that. And Jesus is looking at this thinking, my goodness, this is not what this is supposed to be. So let's just use our imagination for a second. Put yourself in, in the sandals of a, of a Jew in Jerusalem or a non-Jew. And uh, you know that King Jesus has just rode in on a donkey. You know that people are expecting him or want him to be the guy who conquers the Roman Empire. And then you see Jesus go into worship at the, at the, or into the worship center of Judaism, the temple. And what are you expecting? Well, I don't know. If it was me, I'm expecting a speech. I mean, he's the Messiah. I mean, he's the, he's the one who's going to kick the Romans out. You think he's going to come in to, you know, come into the temple area of the Gentiles and say, listen, man, no more paying for college. That's it. You're done. And uh, no more student loans, and everything's going to be free, and it's going to be great. Just vote for me for Messiah, and, and everything will be wonderful. And I would be expecting, you know, kind of rallying the troops, and we're told that he starts overturning the tables. I mean, he, he's, I know you waiters and waitresses, you're like, you got to flip tables, a different kind of flipping tables. So he's, he's flipping tables, and, and then it says that he, he, 
he, he, took the, he overturned the seats of those who sold the doves, the people that were taking advantage of the poor people. What I want to really know is, were the people still in the seats? Like, that would have been way cool. I mean, <laughs> people are sitting there going, what's he doing? Whoa! whoa. And they're going, they're going flying over, and Jesus is, just seems to be going crazy. And I, I would imagine a lot of people were thinking, like, what is he doing? Is this what messiahship looks like? And I know, I know a lot of you people are like, oh, not my Jesus. Dear sweet Jesus would never do anything like that. Well, yeah, he would. <laughs> okay, so, so why is he angry? This is what we call righteous anger. This is righteous indignation. The Bible actually commands us to be angry. It says, be angry and sin not. And there are certain things when we hear about them, when we read about them, when we witness them, we should be angry about them certain injustices that are going on. And he is very angry. We're told why in verse 13. And he said to them, it is written, and he quotes uh, Isaiah 56, 7, my house. Now, I wonder if some of the guys listening to him going, does he think this is his house? This is God's house. Remember, Matthew just told us it's God's temple. Does this he think is his house? My house. And this is, again, a mixed citation. They mix Bible verses together. Quotes Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it, and then he quotes Jeremiah seven eleven, a den of thieves, uh, or some versions say a den of robbers. Now, it's very interesting, the choice of the word den that Jeremiah used some 600 years earlier. When we talk about den of animals or something like that, it's not out in the open, is it? It's where they hide out. So he's saying that you guys have actually taken... God's house that was supposed to be a house of prayer. We'll talk about what that means in a second. And he says, you have actually made it a hideout for predators. We talk about, you know, a wolf's den or something like that. And you've, you've made this place a place where people who are praying and not P-R-A-Y, P-R-E-Y, that are preying on God's people and, and ripping them off. So now we, we've, we've heard what Jesus has said. We've put ourselves in there. We're watching what's going on. We're watching Jesus. Now we're going to actually do something very, very dangerous. We're going to put ourselves in Jesus' sandals. Let's imagine the, the, what he's seeing through his eyes. He comes in. He sees all of these people seeking God. I mean, this is a place where everybody is allowed. There's no restrictions on this place. And he sees them all, they're there, they're, they're, some, they're seeking after God. And what does he do? What does he smell? A bunch of animals. I mean, I know sometimes church don't smell great, but come on. He, he, smells, he smells a bunch of animals. He sees all of these people sell, buying and selling, making deals. You know, how much is this? Don't buy his, oh, don't buy his lamb. Buy my lamb. Much cheaper, much better, much better. Perfect. He'll pass the priest. I gave him five bucks. He'll pass, right? And so all this kinds of crooked stuff is going on. And, and you're Jesus and you're thinking, how in the world could anybody think this is what God wants? How in the world could anybody think that this is, uh, is temple? What's happening? You're actually, they're actually making it harder for people to worship God. And one thing that when you're in the ministry, in the clergy, you're supposed to be making it easier for people, not necessarily they feel easier, but easier to understand God and easier for them to worship God. And then the temple was, among many reasons, many things, it was to be a witness to the world. And, and so what, what do we see here? 
we see people are not coming to the witness of the world. They're coming into a business enterprise. You know, sometimes people say this to me. They go, don't forget, Pastor, church is not a business. And I go, and don't you forget, don't act like a customer, all right? Because that's, that's what happens a lot. It can, be a, it can become a very transactional thing. And so we have to be very, very careful of that. So, so what's happening right here, right now? Jesus walks in. He sees what passes for religion going on. He starts flipping the table, flipping the chairs. Jesus is judging phony religion. Jesus is telling us what heaven thinks of phony religion. There's another problem here that's very, very subtle, and, and perhaps we have to think about it. And some people at the last service said, yeah, it reminded me of, of, of growing up in church myself. You see, what happens is a lot of people in church, in church world, have become so used to crooked, scandal-ridden, nominal, dead religion. They've become so used to it, they're like, immune to it. They're inoculated. They don't even realize it's going on. And they're like, well, you know, that's my church. And I guess I got to still go there. And, you know, okay, all those scandals and that scandals and cover up and, and people become so used to it. They're just going through the motions. Now it's interesting. He, he talks about uh, Jeremiah, about the, the den of thieves. And for your homework, you might want to read uh, Jeremiah seven. And Jeremiah was lived about 600 years before Jesus. Very, very critical of what was going on in Jerusalem at the time. And he, and he basically accused the people of God of treating the temple, and the temple was uh, symbolic of the presence of God with his people, and he basically accused them of using the temple like a rabbit's foot. Like, hey, we're God's people. We have the temple. Nobody's ever going to be able to attack us up here. Then uh, we're up on a hill. We're protected. God's with us. They're, they're not going to do it. All they did was they surrounded them and starved them out. God said, all right, you don't, want, you, don't want me, you don't want me to help? I won't help. It's fine. I won't help. And so, and so that's what they do, did. They thought because they were God's people, they presumed upon God helping them. And, and so what, what happens is that, that they have made it into this place. They're presuming again, and this is a different temple. The first one was destroyed. This is a different temple. They're presuming upon God again. I don't think Jesus has a problem with people buying animals because they had traveled some of them just really hundreds and hundreds of miles, maybe even thousands of miles. I think Jesus' point is something like this. Why are you doing this here? I mean, really? You, you could set up a mile away a place to buy animals. You could set that up, and you, you could do it all there and let the people bring their animals into here. And, and, you don't, and there's no reason to be dishonest. Why do you have to do it there? I mean, you could picture him thinking to himself, why do people who have come so far to meet God end up at a circus. Or it's kind of like the New York Stock Exchange. You know, they're like, oh, they're, they're yelling out and stuff like that. I mean, this is, this is this, this crazy, crazy place. You know, the, the court of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, was supposed to be in a, an evangelistic place. This is where people would come and say, I really don't know anything about the God of Israel. Can you tell me about him? And if you were a good Jew, you'd go, yes, I would love to tell you about the God of Israel. But what are they doing? They're ripping them off. They're ripping people off. And Jesus is looking at this thing and thinking, do you know what a gross misrepresentation of God this is? I mean, you're, you're, making, you're making people think that, it, that it, it, if you don't have the exact perfect animal, God doesn't like you. 
or, or if you can't, you don't have enough money to buy the right kind of dove, you know, a pigeon, right? That God, that, that God, is, that God is, is, is not going to love you, is not going to care about you. So what are they doing? They are leaving people with completely the wrong impression of God. And as followers of Jesus, we have to battle that constantly, constantly. The temple, the church now, is to be a place where God meets with his people, and it's referred to here as a house of prayer. Now, this is one of those words that usually only teachers know. Uh, it, the word prayer here is used here as uh, what we call a synecdoche. Ready? A synecdoche. All the teachers are like, uh, nobody knows that word. And, and what is that word? That, that means it's one word that's used to summarize many things. Let me give you an example. Um, yesterday, I was at the prince's party. Some of you are like, really? Prince Harry's in town? No, Prince Noah James, our grandson. So I was, I was at his party yesterday, and I was talking to a woman who had just come back uh, about a month ago from her uh, second tour in Afghanistan. And so she was getting ready to go back again, and I was thanking her for protecting our country and you know, really appreciative of, of, of all the blessings we have in this country because of people who that and talking about some of the situation that was going on over there. And one of the expressions that came out in the discussion was the, exp- was the expression, boots on the ground. You've heard that expression before, right? Well, that is a synecdoche. W- what does it mean? Does it mean that just cargo planes were going over Afghanistan and they're just dropping just tons of boots on the ground and like, hey, the Americans are here. How do you know? The boots are flying out of the plane, <laughs> right? No, no, what does that mean? That means there's soldiers on the ground. That means there's going to be soldiers and artillery and and, and weapons and stuff like that. So it's using one word to summarize a lot of activity that's going on. So prayer stands for all of the elements of public worship, of prayer, of teaching, of sacrifice, of praise, of fellowship, etc. You know, God's people coming together. Um, but, but what had happened was true temple worship had been lost in the frenzy of man-centered activity. And people, and it's very easy to happen in a church, very easy, and people who were genuinely seeking God were not only being financially robbed, but they were being robbed of the ability to hear about and to meet the living God. They were, they were, being, they were being ripped off in, in the effort they had made to go to the temple. Well, Jesus combats the phoniness Verse 14, then the blind and the lame, people who typically were not really welcomed in the, in the temple precinct, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So Jesus heals the blind and lame people, the people that can't walk. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders, saw the wonderful things that he did. I mean, they're looking at this like, oh no, here they come, these people, we don't want them here. And all of a sudden Jesus is healing them, so they're watching the miraculous. They're watching things beyond belief happening. It says, and then, and then they hear something. Then they hear children crying out in the temple and saying, now they didn't want the blind there, they didn't want the lame there, they didn't want the children there. All bad for business. All bad for business. And they're saying, the kids are yelling out, Hosanna to the son of David. Same thing the people were yelling out on the triumphal entry. Hosanna, save now, son of David, the messianic, the name of the Messiah, the son of King David, the ancient son of King David. And it says that they were indignant. They were indignant. 
Mark tells us this was the moment when they said, we got to get rid of him. All up to this time, a lot's been leading to it, but now they're going, we have got to get rid of him. Who does this guy think that he is? And said to him, they said to Jesus, do you hear what they are saying? In other words, why don't you ask them to stop? But Jesus doesn't. And they said to him, and, and they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I know you have a job in the ministry, but you should buy a Bible. Right? <laughs> we'll give you one after the service. All we ask is that you put your name in and your cell phone number in it so we can call you if we find it. He's just making, he's just, who says Jesus isn't funny? Have you never read, and he quotes Psalm 8-2 from hundreds of years ago, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Now, that's really interesting, actually. If the kids are there, according to the psalm, the kids are there, they're praising Jesus, and it says nursing infants, nursing infants are actually turning their head towards Jesus. What is he doing? You're supposed to be eating. What's going on here? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. So there's no room for him in Jerusalem. He's got to go. So instead of a commercial uh, enterprise, the house of the Lord is to be a house of worship and a house of healing. Still true that it was true then, still true now. And Jesus demonstrates that here. And, and what amazes me about Jesus, I mean, he totally has the perfect personality. He moves, right, so quickly here. He, he kicks out the in crowd. The in crowd are all the money changers and the people who are giving the priest's eye a piece of the action and, and the people who are doing all the, you know, the bait and switch, the, the shell game guys with the animals and stuff like that. He kicks the in crowd out of the temple. And what does he do? He invites in the temple outcasts. He invites them close to him. What is he really doing? He's inviting outcast to the Holy of Holies. He's, he's inviting outcast to, to the place of God. And, and, and it's amazing the way he turns. He moves from holy indignation and judgment on religious hypocrites. And in a second, he turns and he is full of, of compassion to the hurting. He always knows what to do. That's what a lot of walking in the Spirit is, is when you're just walking in communion with God and you're able to turn on a dime. You're able to move from flipping tables. You're able to move from saying, you know, don't go flipping tables after lunch, uh, lunch today. We don't recommend that. We'll come visit you if you do. Um, but, but, but to be able to go from saying, that's wrong, how can I help? To be able to move from being so angry at the misrepresentation of God, but then being quickly able to turn and represent God to people. It's, it's an amazing, he has an amazing personality. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're, we're thrilled that you're here. I'm thrilled that you're here. Here, Jesus demonstrates for us his power and authority to heal and purify all those who want God. And he would love to do that for you today. He would absolutely love to do that for you today.
Back in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 12, we, we talked about this already. Uh, the religious leaders and, the, and the, Jesus were talking in a Sabbath debate. And Jesus said this, Matthew 12, 6. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. It's not about the building. It's not about the building. It's about the Savior. But once again, the religious leaders, instead of being happy that people are healed, they are indignant. I mean, can you just imagine this for a second? You walk in, you're blind. You walk up to one of the, one of the guys and you go, hey, look at me, I'm healed. They're like, get out of here. You're bad for business. Now the guy, I came in, I couldn't walk. My friends carried me in there. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I can dance. Isn't this great? Go, leave. No dancing in church, right? Get, get out of here. I mean, they can't even be happy for them all. They're angry. Why are they angry? They cannot stand all of the attention that Jesus is getting. They just absolutely can't stand it. Even Pontius Pilate knew that it was because of envy that they wanted to kill him. Now, here, here's the hypocrisy that we see here. The religious leaders are fine with cheats at church. Isn't that amazing? They're fine with cheats at church, but they're not fine with God at church. They're like, hey, <laughs> too much of this God stuff, man. We don't, we don't want this. They're, they're not fine with, with his healing of outcasts or little kids who know who Jesus is. You know, it's an amazing thing. We could, we could have some of the four and five-year-olds from our children's church come in here and they could, we'd ask them stuff about Jesus, and they would give us the simplest answers, and we would be like, ah, because we as adults, we complicate it so much. And, and they, 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 don't, they don't want the kids there. The kids know who Jesus is, and the religious leaders don't. So in reality, it is the religious leaders who are blind. It is the religious leaders who are lame. It is the religious leaders that don't see. It's the religious leaders that don't walk with Jesus. Why? Because they are not children of God. doesn't matter how many papers you have that says you're a pastor or says you're a priest or says whatever you are. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you are not a child of God and they are phony religious people. All right, that's number one. Told you number one would be longer unless I talk for another couple days, and then number two will be longer. Now, number, number two, uh, very interesting. Uh, this, one, this one could be a little tough on some of us, so you ready? You might want to put your seatbelts on. Number two is seeing fruitless religion. Seeing fruitless religion, verse 18. Now, in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree, sometimes symbolic of Israel in the Bible, And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it. And so Jesus is talking to the tree. It's okay to talk to trees. I'm only a little concerned if they talk back to you, but it's okay to talk to trees. And Jesus said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately, the fig tree withered away. So what we have going on here is similar to the triumphal entry, similar to the actions in the temple. This is really another acted out parable by Jesus that comes with really an extremely sober warning. Jesus is warning all of us who profess to be God's people who live unfruitful lives. This is people who say that they are Christians, but there is no evidence of them being Christians. 
So what's going on here? Jesus is on the move. He's hungry. And he looks down the road and he sees a fig tree. And the fig tree has leaves on it. And this time of year, when a fig tree would have leaves on it, would not have full-blown figs on it, would have these small early figs, as they would call them. But as he gets close to the tree, he sees the leaves, he's expecting to find the fruit. He gets close there. He sees that this tree is unproductive. It's not producing fruit. It is therefore unhealthy. And that serves as a picture for us of unprofitable and unhealthy faith that is found among some of the people of God and certainly among many of church of the churches of God or claim to be churches of God. So what's going on here specifically in this moment? Israel has gone astray in temple worship. They have not repented. They have not turned to God, forsaken their sin. They have not repented at the arrival of the king and the kingdom of heaven. And now they are being judged. It will only be approximately 40 years later, depending upon when we date the the, the, the crucifixion in 70 AD when the Romans will come in and they will level the place. And so they are being, they are being judged. So what's the point for us? You say, well, I have nothing to do with me. I don't, I don't get that. I think the point for us is really is exactly the same. We just have to think of it differently. And it's that it's easy in life. And it's easy in the Christian life to appear fruitful but upon closer examination. Now, how does that closer examination ha- happen? It happens through the word of God. And this is where we have to understand this. I know it's really popular in church. To, the, the, the biggest churches in the country don't really talk about sin very much. Well, well, how can you be examined by God if nobody talks about sin? How can you repent of your sin if nobody talks about sin? And so here, here we see that upon closer examination by Jesus and for us through the word of God, the spiritually barren and the spiritually empty are unmasked. He walks up to the tree. It looks good on the outside. It looks religious on the outside. But upon closer examination, it is spiritually barren. It is spiritually empty. You know, friends, it is so possible, and many of us, we know this, but it's important we think about it. It's possible to have in a church lots of religious activity or stuff that we think is religious activity. Okay, bingo is not religious activity. Okay, but it's possible to have a lot of that stuff in a church, but not offer it to God in spirit and truth. Jesus wants his church to be a place of prayer and praise. He wants it to be a place where not Pastor Jim, but when we open the Bible, that we are on the edge of our seat. A couple weeks ago, one of the brothers in the church walked up to me and said, I was on the edge of my seat today. And I was like, that's exactly what God wants us to be. Like, like coming into church every, every Sunday morning going, we're going to hear from God today. Like he's going to speak And so he wants us to be really on on the edge of our seat, hanging on every word from the word of God. And the result will be that our lives will begin to bear fruit. And and you can't do that if you only show up once in a while. You can't do that if you come in late and leave early. That's That's not a life that's going to be able to bear fruit. So what does fruit look like? What does fruit in the Christian life look like? And here I just want to step back and, and have us all have a measure 
of caution. It doesn't mean that we compare our ministries to somebody else. We all have a ministry. We don't compare it to someone else. We follow people as they follow Christ, but we don't compare what one person does versus what another one does. So be very careful of the way you judge your own personal ministry either or your own fruit of your ministry. Be, be careful of being too hard on yourself, but being careful of being too easy on yourself. And, and we want to have a sober and, and right judgment of, of such things. And so, so what are some of the things that we could, we could talk about? Well, we could, we could talk about the fruit of repentance, of saying to God, I know this is wrong in my life. You've pointed it out. You've been telling me all week. I, I, I really, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I need your help. I'm sorry. Forgive me. It, 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 fruit is love. It is humility. It, it is kindness. It is the true worship of God and the love of the people of God. In Galatians chapter uh, five, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, we're not going to be perfect at it, but we should be coming more and more like it. doesn't mean we're not going to have our slip-ups here and there, but we're becoming more and more like it. And, and, and some of those things, the, the, the practical expression of them will be different in our lives. It'll, it'll be different in a, you know, in, a, in, a, in a children's ministry teacher than it will be in a parking lot guy. It will be different than, than some guy, this man or woman that runs a company than it might be with, with someone who doesn't run the company. So we, we all have to realize that these things will be expressed differently. And he says here, verse 24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. So, so what would I say about that? I would say what the Apostle Paul is telling us here, there's an aggressiveness in living out the life of Christ that now dwells inside the believer, but there's also an aggressiveness against indwelling sin that's still inside of us. And so we're not, we're not giving in to our, our passions and our desires. But that is not what Jesus found in the temple. That is not what, what the people who came in seeking God found in the temple. They found hypocrisy. They found celebrity religious leaders. They found lots of hype. Same stuff we find in the American church. Celebrities, hype, all kinds of stuff like that. And, and so that's, that, that's just, they, the hypocrisy was just horrible. Now, I know it's really hip and cool for everybody to go, well, you know, we're all hypocrites in the church. And, and we are to some extent. You know, we all say stuff and don't follow through and, or we portray a better image than maybe we, we really are. But I think what Jesus has in mind here with these people is these are people who are religious in name only without a real heart for God, without a real heart for the things of God. And, and they've made the whole thing into a business, in, into a showy thing. And, you know, you say, well, that was then. Well, we live in now. Well, so much of church now is entertainment, is entertaining people. Like, I hear a lot of pastors talk, and they don't think that you no longer have the intelligence level to sit through the teaching of God's Word. That's just awful. That is so condescending. Like, well, why, don't, why don't you just try? Why don't you just try? Well, like, oh, they all want their problems fixed. Well, maybe if, if they perceive the love of God more and they grow closer to God, the problems won't matter as much. Maybe they'll be able to face them a lot better. So what we need to be careful of, and, and it's easy for, for a church and, and for church people 
is, is to think like the people in Jeremiah's day. Like, we attend church, and that's cool. But if to attend church and to continue to sin without repentance, without turning to God and asking his forgiveness, without with, with presuming or assuming that God is okay with everything, or not even caring about our sin, is guaranteed to produce a fruitless life. There'll be no real fruit in, in such a life. You say, well, how did, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Well, you, you, you and I, we go throughout our week. We do what we shouldn't. We, we, we don't do what we should. And, and we think, well, it's okay. I go to church. And Jesus is like, what? What are you talking about? I, and I know, the, I know the pushback I get from a lot of people. This is not necessarily here, but people I meet. And they go, they go to me, well, Jesus knows my heart. And I'm like, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. Don't you see it? He knows our hearts. And, and that's why we need to repent. Or the, ad of, uh, the attitude of so many now in, in the church in America, and I realize this is being critical, but I'm just calling it what it is, is, is that somebody calls people, followers of Jesus, or say they're followers of Jesus, to obedience and holiness. By the way, the same thing that Jesus and the apostles did, and they're like, oh, that's just a bunch of rules. That's just a bunch of legalism. I'm not saying that God doesn't forgive. I would never say that. That's why he died on the cross for us. But he also died on the cross to fill us with his spirit, to empower us to say, what did Paul just say in Galatians? To say no to those desires and to those passions. I mean, look at this illustration. Our trees can have plenty of religious leaves, but they can cover up a, a fruitless life. But it cannot cover up a fruitless life from Jesus. Jesus is not going to be like, you're like, hey, look at my leaves, look at my tree. And everybody's like, oh, wow, very holy man. I can close to that guy, right? Jesus comes over and goes, well, let's have a look under the hood. Let's have a look under the leaves. Let's see what's, let's see what's really there. Now, all of this is meant to be soul-searching, not condemning at all. You come to Jesus and say, I need to really fix this stuff. You will find nobody more welcoming than him. But what does Jesus see when he looks under the leaves of your life. I mean, I've been thinking about this all week long, right? So that which I have received from the Lord, I pass on to you. And what, do, what does he see when he looks under the leaves of, of my life? Does, does Jesus see the fruit of repentance? You know, when, when Jesus comes into your life, what, what does he do with the furniture? He rearranges it, doesn't he? When Jesus comes into the house of your life, you look out the window and you're like, why is there a dumpster pulling up to my house? <laughs> right? Because a lot of stuff's got to go. A lot of stuff's got to go. And it's new furniture's going to come in. It's going to be beautiful. But, but there's a fight. Some of us are pack rats. We want to hold on to that old stuff. And some of that stuff's got to go. And so do, when Jesus comes in, does he see the fruit of repentance? Does he see a desire for holiness? Does he see a... a Grace-motivated, love-motivated, cross-motivated, Holy Spirit-empowered desire for love and good deeds? Does he see a desire for service and generosity? Does he see a desire for consistent, heartfelt worship? 
Does he sense the real faith that, that God's people want? You see, that, that's what's going on here. And my fear, this is just my fear. And, and I watch some of the most famous pastors in, in this country. And I'm like, dude, you're leaving a lot out. What you're saying, I get. It's, it's kind of shallow, but you're leaving a lot out. We live in a church in America that says they get grace. But I'm afraid that a lot of people are going to get judgment for their phony religion. Because that is exactly what happened to the people who thought in Jeremiah's day, who thought they were fine, and then the Babylonians came in and judged them. The same thing in Jesus' day, they thought they were fine. They were church people, they were going to temple, and then the Romans came in, and they can tout their religiosity all they want. We can tout our religiosity all we want, but we cannot fool Jesus. Your Bible, you know, I fight with those Bible headings that were not put in there by the Bible writers, and it says Jesus cleanses the temple. No, Jesus is judging this place. He is the righteous judge, and he's judging this place, the temple, full of phony worship, full of phony religion. He's actually cursing it. Instead of walking with Jesus, which produces the fruit of righteousness, Jesus met the fruitless unbelief of nominal or non-existent religion. A verse we quote quite often around here, Matthew 15, 7 through 9. Jesus says, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, and he quotes Isaiah 29, talking to religious people, God talking to religious people. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. May that never be us, Calvary Chapel, Morris Hills. May that never, ever be us. So we move from seeing phony religion to seeing fruitless religion to number three, being faithful and fruitful. Being faithful and fruitful. Verse 20. And when the disciples saw it, the the tree that had withered, they marveled. Some versions say they were astonished, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Actually, it's not a great question. They know how it happened. Jesus talked to the tree. A better question is, why did this happen? Why did you do this, Jesus? Verse 21, we have to read it twice, uh, first time through. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Let's go slower now. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith, remember we often say that's a word that's more similar to our word trust, and do not doubt. So what does that mean? You keep trusting. You keep trusting. You're not doubting. Remember, loved ones, we need to preach to ourselves more, listen to ourselves less. The voices are coming in, the voices are coming in, and we're like, no, 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 I'm trusting Jesus. I'm going to trust the Lord. I can count on him. I can count on his word. He rose from the dead. He does the miraculous. He's never going to leave me or forsake me. And so he says, if you have faith and do not doubt, and then Jesus tells them, if you have faith and do not doubt what you can accomplish, he says, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain... Now, some think he's looking at the Mount of Olives. I think he's looking at the Temple Mount. Be removed and be cast into the sea. It will be done. 
Verse 22, be very careful. Be very, very careful. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, in other words, with faith, you will receive. So, phony and fruitless religion trusts in itself. But a true follower of Jesus is full of faith in Jesus and fights off the doubt. We all, we all doubt. We've got to doubt our doubts sometimes. It fights off the doubt. And Jesus says, if you can do that, you can do great things for the kingdom of God. Remember, don't measure what somebody else is doing. It's what God has given you to do. Now, let's look at what Jesus did not say here. He did not say that faith moves mountains. He didn't say that. He said that faith would move this mountain. This mountain. And so what mountain is that? It is the mountain of dead, ritualistic, phony religion. That's the mountain. So, so, so Jesus is using a metaphor here saying, he's not saying, listen, just go over to a mountain and say, hey, you know, Mount Rushmore, go jump in the Pacific. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that, that you can, we can as a church, through faith and trust and accompanying action, move mountains. Some of you, as I've been talking, I see the wheels turning in your head. You're thinking of who you're going to give this message to. You're like, I got plenty of religious relatives. They need to hear this. And you're thinking about that. But what Jesus is saying here is that you and I, we as a church, can be used in the lives of unbelieving religious people. And not just people who, who their God is church or some false religion, just people who other stuff, comfort, money, work, whatever it is, pleasure, all kinds of different false gods. In other words, God is saying here, Jesus is saying God is willing and able to use you, yes, you, to produce eternal fruit in a situation that seems impossible. And while I'm watching the wheels turning in some of your heads, and I know you're thinking of, you know, this aunt, this uncle, this brother, this sister, this mother, this father, this person, it's all turning in your head, and then you went, nah, that ain't never going to happen. That ain't never going to happen. Jesus is saying you need to stop that doubting. You need to stop that doubting. You need to replace that doubt with faith because I'm willing to do the impossible. Now, if you're here and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, Many people will tell you here that sit here, they would say, I know, I know what that's like because that's what he did for me. I know what it's like to experience that. And the truth of the matter is, friend, if you are not a, yet a follower of Jesus, that Jesus can take your mountain of unbelief. He can pick it up and he can throw it into the sea of his love. And I've seen it happen in my own life in the lives of so many people. Don't doubt it's possible, and it's possible for you. And your life of faith and trust, a believing prayer will be empowered by God to produce eternal fruit. Something that you can actually carry into the next life. And notice where Jesus calls the apostles to faith on the side of the road, outside the temple outside the church because it's not about the building. 
Because wherever you go, wherever we go, Jesus is with us. All right, what about verse 22? Some of you read that, and whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Some of you are already driving that new car. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, I'm going to an open house, and I'm going to put in such a ridiculous thing. Like, oh, this million-dollar house, I'll give you 50 bucks for it. Oh, okay, yes, praise the Lord, right? Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> this is a theme verse of the false teachers. This is a theme verse of theirs. Uh, you know how it goes like this. If you want to be rich, if you have enough faith, um, then you'll be rich. And then you didn't have enough faith. And they said, uh, well, you, you didn't get rich. You said, they say, well, you didn't have enough faith. And they say, well, you need to give a lot of money. And if you give a lot of money in faith, it'll come back to you 10 times over. So you give a lot of money and then it didn't happen for you. And, th- and they say, well, you didn't have enough faith. I mean, they got you coming and going. They can't, you can't beat them. You just can't beat them with that. I say this in all sincerity, loved ones. Selfishness is no way asking in faith. Selfishness and asking in faith are are the Grand Canyon apart. Praying in faith always leaves room for God to override our selfish desires. Always. That's why we say prayer, people say prayer changes things, but a lot of times we say prayer changes us. Because he'll kill a lot of those selfish desires. Our faith is not in faith. Our faith is in God. True faith is not forcing yourself to believe what you really don't believe. True faith is genuine trust in the will and the power of God. And so I think what Jesus is saying to all of us here this morning is this is if you're praying for fruit in Christian service, you can be confident that is a prayer the Lord will hear. It may not come out the way you want, but that is a prayer the Lord will hear. A life that walks with Jesus in faith and trust is is a key to being fruitful and faithful. And it's our defense against phony and fruitless religion. By the end of this week in Jesus' life, it will be the phony and fruitless religious people that will put Jesus on the cross. They think they're doing God a favor. God says it's all part of my plan because Jesus is dying on the cross in your place and in my place for your sins. Jesus was full of life. He was full of life And he had the most fruitful ministry ever. Yet on the cross, it seemed like he was the one who was cursed by God. And it seemed like he was the one who was withering away. But Jesus rose from the dead because he won the battle over sin and death. And if today you're willing to put your trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus can and will Move the mountain of your faithless religion. Move the mountain of your fruitless religion and unbelief and bring you to new life in Jesus Christ, a life that bears fruit. Well, let's pray.